You're listening to the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs by the world-leading tech incubator, the DMZ. In this podcast, each episode brings in the movers and shakers of the world to cover leadership mentality, tips for business owners, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's your host, Canada's leading podcaster, CPA and business strategist, Robert Gold, managing partner at Bennett Gold LLP. Once again, from high atop the Movers and Shakers Podcast Center in Toronto, high up on the 82nd floor, live and in the morning, we're way off to the southwest. I can see Payne Court, Ontario. I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner of Bennett Gold, LLP, Chartered Accounts and CPAs in Toronto. Today, I have got a great guest for you. Anthony DiOrio is with us. Anthony is an amazing guy. He's the co-founder of Ethereum. He's the CEO of Decentral, Decentral Decentral.ca. I cannot wait to get into this. Anthony, welcome to the Movers and Shakers podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Oh, it's so exciting to have the Ethereum guy with us. Anthony is a serial entrepreneur, a venture capitalist, community organizer, thought leader in the field of decentralized technologies, and to top it off, a Ryerson alumni. And of course, the DMZ is a Ryerson production. He's launched more than 10 companies. And in 2013, Anthony funded and co-founded Ethereum, which we've all heard of, the decentralized smart contract platform that at its peak hit 150 to 200 billion in market cap, a number that I can't get my head around. Currently, Anthony is the founder and CEO of Decentral Inc., Decentral.ca, a Toronto-based innovation hub, software development company focused on, guess what, decentralized technologies. That's my intro. Anthony, let's talk about your journey to the crypto industry. Tell us briefly about what led you to your involvement with Ethereum and how that led to the creation of Decentral. Sure, and for the sake of factual information, it's actually hit uh, $500 billion over the last couple of months. Anthony, what does what that does number mean? It even mean? That, it means that if you take the number of Ether, which is the, 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 the units of Ethereum that people can own, and you multiply the amount of units there are by the amount of value it is that people are buying and selling it at, that gives you the market capitalization. The amount of actual units in circulation times the amount of, of the value, which has been about as high as $5,000 Canadian each, if you multiply those things together, you're going to get the market capitalization, which gives you the idea of the, the worth of the entire project. When Bitcoin was around $100 trillion of market cap, meaning that every Bitcoin times the value of Bitcoin gives you the, the amount of value that's in circulation as a whole that people own, Ethereum was about half of that. So we were, it was about, about $500 billion. So it's readily uh, climbing uh, towards Bitcoin. Some say that it's going to overtake Bitcoin in the future. Well, it's crazy talk, but let, let's get into your journey. Ethereum rate to decentral. How did we go? from you to Ethereum and moving on to Decentral? What's the process? Well, the process uh, for me goes way back uh, in, in my youth as a computer guy in the dawn of, of the personal computing age back in the early 80s. Uh, I was born in 75. Computers were my thing. Computers and sports back then. When I would get into trouble, my parents would take my computer away. So building computers very early on as, as personal computers entered, entered people's homes and started kind of democratizing computing power and making it readily accessible to, to individuals at home. I was quite involved before the internet with, with communicating via modems um, and, and being able to connect to, to BBS, bulletin board systems, way back in the day before the internet emerged. And then when the internet came, uh, I really jumped in on that. I was designing websites uh, with HTML1 very early on in the early days of the internet. Went to Ryerson for business, uh, commerce degree, graduated in the first program, the commerce program, actually went for business management and was turned to commerce the year that I that I graduated. I uh, did some marketing for a while. That was my major in school. Didn't really like uh, marketing. The idea for me was generally trying to 
convince someone to do something and, or maybe to buy something that they don't necessarily need. And uh, to this day, uh, marketing and taking advantage of people is something that I, that I take, take offense to. I mean, not all marketing is that, but uh, there's a lot of it that does go on. Went to join the family business, which was sliding patio doors in, in uh, the mid-2000s and, and did that for a number of years until my dad and his brothers decided to sell the company. Moved from there into geothermal drilling. I bought this massive drill from Italy and proceeded to take this drill to drill hundreds of holes in the ground in, in Italy in two IKEA projects to heat and cool IKEAs with uh, the Earth's temperature. Brought it back to Toronto, proceeded to do uh, condominiums and retirement centers, a real like, green technology at the time that was emerging uh, that would, would literally use the Earth's temperature to, to heat and cool and remove the need for fossil fuels and, and furnaces and things like that. And a couple of years of, of doing that, I realized how challenging it was to work with drillers and also the, the government had removed some subsidies on those programs and added a lot of red tape in the, in the, in the process uh, and made it difficult for those, uh, those technologies to flourish. And they really kind of went on the decline around that time. And at the same time, I was, I was a property owner. I bought a few properties by York University and had some student housing there. And after the financial crisis and housing crisis in the U.S., I thought the same thing would be happening up here in Canada and I took my profits and sold the properties and had done quite well then. And at that time, it was uh, about 2011, 2012, I, I, I took some time just discovering what had happened during the housing crisis and the financial crisis and digging into economics, really, for the first time in my life and realizing uh, how a lot of government involvement uh, and a lot of the, the economics that are taught in terms of the Keynesian model, which is kind of the model that's taught in schools, leads to a lot of the booms and bust cycles. And I became enamored more with the Austrian School of Economics, which was more talking about sound money and sound backing and, and uh, how inflation is really a hidden tax that leads to a lot of issues. And from there, I heard about Bitcoin. It was the summer of 2012. Being someone that's involved in technology with computers that, that really have been studying economics, it was really the opportune time for me to grab hold of something that was emerging. And right away, I understood the power already of decentralized technologies, but then putting that together in a, in a way that enabled people to become their own bank and enabled people to have an asset, a digital asset, that for the first time ever couldn't be duplicated. And that was really the, the main breakthrough of, of Bitcoin, is that for the first time ever, you could have something digital that couldn't be copied. And whereby that's really amazing for copying information and how uh, the internet led to the democratization of information and being able to copy emails and send them globally that really helped the flourishing of information during the age of information. But to have a digital asset with the properties of money, it doesn't work in the same fashion. And, and you don't want to be able to duplicate something that needs the properties of money because scarcity is one of the main functions of money. And if you have something that could be duplicated, and I have it and I give it to you and I can make copies of it, well, it's not a real good money system because anybody can just make it. So Bitcoin really entered and for the first time ever made it that you could have something digital, prove ownership of it, and it could be duplicated. And if you could send it around the world rapidly and fast, it really uh, can challenge the typical money that we have now. And I saw that very early on and, and I jumped in. I started the Toronto Bitcoin Meetup Group in 2012. Uh, as I was looking for a community, there was none that existed. And I said, well, this is great. This is perfect time for me to take my entrepreneurial background, my technology background, my knowledge of decentralized technologies, and bring that forward. And uh, I kind of helped to become a creator of, the, of the, the community around here in Toronto and started building groups and meetups that grew to thousands of people and started building uh, wallets. Wallets are really the interfaces for these technologies. It enables the movement of, of digital assets, just like the browser was the interface for the internet. It needs a tool that the average person can navigate. So I started building the wallets, realizing that all these technologies require a wallet to, to send and receive and manage the assets. And, um, a gentleman named Vitalik Buterin, uh, who was a uh, fellow Bitcoin enthusiast, uh, who showed up at my very first Bitcoin meetup and who I brought on to help me with my wallet company as we got early on going, showed me a white paper for this uh, project in 2013, end of November. 
And uh, I validated it with a couple other friends that I brought in to see, hey, does he have something here? And it appeared that he did, and it appeared to me and others. And from that point on, uh, I took some money that I made in my first investments in Bitcoin when I got in under $10 and through an exit in the space uh, that I had done prior and took that capital and, and funded Ethereum as we headed towards becoming the largest crowdfunded ports of all time, uh, raising $18 million in 2014 from 9,000 participants around the world who trusted us to, to take that capital and build out a system that took the basis of, of Bitcoin but added a what's called a smart contract layer on top of it. And smart contract is really the, the highlight of, of Ethereum. It, it enables code to execute based on data fed into it, and it could be weather data, sports data. And then uh, this system uh, executes that code and ends up moving things based on how the code is contracted and, and programmed, and we created a much more flexible, robust, blockchain system that uh, can, can do much more than you can do with Bitcoin. And since then, as we mentioned, uh, got on to have a $500 billion market cap, and it's grown from $0.25 cents a piece up to as high as $5,000 a piece. And it's being used by pretty much any company uh, around the world that's building in crypto is generally using Ethereum right now. And that goes for companies like Microsoft and IBM and pretty much any that you could possibly think of. And uh, started in Toronto out of my shop called Decentral, which is my brand, and I build tools and interfaces that empower people to be in control of their digital lives, to more empower people away from the traditional business models of give us your information and we'll monetize it. Uh, instead, we believe that people should be empowered to be in control of their money, their identity, and their communication. So I strive to create that shift and better models that, that don't state, we'll take something from you and we'll, we'll monetize it. And, and at the end of the day, if it gets compromised, well, that, that's your problem. So there's a lot of deficiencies with business models, and Ethereum is going to emerge to help that. And, and what I create with Decentral is on the lines of doing the same thing. So let me interrupt you there for a second. I work with a lot of technology clients, and a lot of them sit down and say, we're going to launch a technology project. They white paper it, they code it, they flowchart it. It's never as easy as it sounds. So when you guys said we're going to launch Ethereum, you didn't go out on Monday, make that decision by Friday, had something operating. I imagine there were a lot of hurdles, a lot of stops and starts, a lot of iterations. Can you give us the elevator story on what it took to actually get Ethereum off the ground or was out of beta and you could offer it to the public? It was a lot of work and it was the work of back then from end of 2013 to 2014, we're talking you know, 50 to 60 in the core group. We had hubs around the world that sprung up really quickly. We had like hundreds of meetup groups that spread out pretty quickly. So building out the community around what it was we were doing was paramount to getting it uh, something that people were understanding and learning and wanted to participate in. We had to be concerned with regulatory environments around the world as we looked to raise capital from all different countries to be able to get as many stakeholders and participants in the mix as possible. So there was a lot of uh, going back and forth between our developer teams and more of the business side to you know, one side wants to move really quickly in terms of the, the, the dev work, and the other side's like, whoa, whoa, let's, let's hold off and make sure that we're regulatory secure here and to make sure that, that we're not going to jail with what it is we're doing. So there was a lot of uh, difficulties decision-making. We had eight founders, initially five, and then we expanded with three more. I, for one, have never liked partners, and I've always known that I'd rather do things on my own, but there was such an opportunity here that presented itself to work with others to do this that I really didn't have much choice in that matter. But eight people trying to make decisions, and eight people that didn't really know each other very well, and some of us had never even met before when we joined together. So there was a lot of tough decision-making and trouble getting decisions made, but we also had some really brilliant people on the team. So it's always a, a give-and-take and, and double-edged sword. So we moved extremely rapidly for what it is we were doing, but also were held back a lot by trying to get decisions made. 
But at the end of the day, I'm very proud to be part of something that does include thousands of people that have gotten it to where it is. I was uh, part of the team until 2015. Since then, uh, it's, it's exploded, and the amount of people that are building and developing really is a massive community effort that's brought it all together. And it has been great being part of this and the early genesis of it. I wouldn't change anything right now, and it's come a long, long way, and I'm very proud to be part of the project. It's an incredible success story, and I'm so happy that we have a Canadian involved in the launch of this thing. But let's talk about that. three, actually. Three Canadians? Even, even better. Yeah, even better. Vitalik, my, yeah, Vitalik, myself, and Joseph Lubin were three of the eight, uh, and there was two out of five initially. Yeah. That, that's so great. That's so great. Let me ask you this. There's a lot of people that hear your story, that hear a lot of the crypto stories, and they want to get in this as well. We've got listeners now across the country, around the world. The DMZ promotes this very well. What is the one piece of advice you would give to anyone who wants to start a company in the crypto sectors, or one thing you would say they have to think about? I'm going to base it on, on, on me and my principles, which is not generally what happens with most people. I, I have some principles, like I don't take outside capital with my projects. I learned a while, just like not having partners, that if you can do it yourself and you can figure out ways to create value and to monetize in a way that's not bringing in people that you're beholden to that might have different goals in terms of funding your project, uh, it allows you to move much faster and be able to make the decisions that you want. And if you can figure out ways to do it on your own or create a product that you can start monetizing and start figuring out ways that you can fund it without being beholden to investors, because a lot of times what happens is you come up with a great idea your principles and what it is you want to do and what change you want to make. But then you get investors that get brought in and you have to start adjusting the dials. And a lot of times the adjustment of those dials means that you have to uh, create deficiencies either by the product you're putting out or you have to do things faster where you think it might, it might take five years. You've got to do it sooner because you have investors that are breathing down your neck and you've got to go raise some other rounds and stuff. So it is challenging, but I've never liked to do things normal. And I like to do things thinking a little bit differently. And I've found that if I can work for myself and I can fund things myself and figure out how to get there, I'm much more freer and I can actually do things in the way that I want to do it and not have to forego principles that I have, like never wanting to hold or have access to customer funds with the wallet to builder, not taking investors' money uh, because I found it does lead to problems down the road that uh, you start off with a good purpose in mind, but a lot of times it gets sidetracked or railroaded because you have to bring these month-after-month returns to your shareholders. And that's, that's really, I think, is the crux of a lot of the problems the world has. And something I'm really passionate about changing is uh, how can we get away from the maximizing shareholder returns as the main focus to more about how can we maximize impact and how can we maximize helping people and solving problems that if you do that and people recognize that you're doing that, you're going to get your maximized returns that you want with what it is you're doing. So I'd like to say, I don't like to give advice, but for me, it's worked really well to stay in control and, and stay in my game is to try to try to avoid as many people that you need to rely on or provide some type of return to. Well, I agree with you. The however is that in the reality in, in Canada, it's hard for startups to self-fund often. They don't all have the track record of success that you have. Plus, the banks and the various other lenders are not that happy with small startups. So most of the startups that I see, they rely on family and friends for that first round. And to your point, although family and friends don't put a lot of pressure on, individuals and entrepreneurs start to feel guilty if all of a sudden the money's going to go down the toilet or they got to go back to them for more. So the in bed with family and friends has its own trials and tribulations as well. Let's move on. Let's talk about the pandemic because COVID-19 has had a huge impact on many, many industries. And it forced so many to make a digital shift right now. In fact, in Germany, they did in three months what they expected they would otherwise do in 
10 years. Canada, I see the same in our clients. So tell me how blockchain goes beyond the hype that we've seen in cryptocurrencies. How does blockchain make the pandemic easier for businesses? Is that the way to put it? Do we ease the burden somehow? I don't know if you can say blockchain is going to make it easier to in the burden of the pandemic or the two things are, are related. The way I like to equate what's going on in more of the decentralized world, and that's how I like the, the fashion, the top, topic away from blockchain, but it's more about the decentralization. You know, the Internet is a very centralized system. It came about with the goal to be a, a democratized way for, for people to share information, but it generally turns into something that's very much controlled by a number of centralized organizations and bodies. Uh, you've got the control towards monopolies of, of organizations like Facebook and the Googles out there. And I think what the promises of the technologies that, that we're bringing forth is more the decentralized nature of, of empowering individuals rather than empowering large entities. And the idea that uh, if you can believe that information wants to be free and now money is also information, it's ones and zeros, and, and that as information wants to be free and unrestricted, the technologies that are coming forward are really empowering people with the tools to be in control of their lives and be their own bank and, and own their identities and, and be able to own their communications in ways that it can't be taken from them. That's really a shift back more to the power of individuals now with the tools that, that can provide that. And that's really the promise of what you know, Web3 is that's emerging. It's really giving the, the end user the ability to decide and, and own their digital life. And that's kind of the shift that, that I hope that we're going to be continuing to see and that we're, we're seeing with business models that do rely on collecting user information, or business models that do rely on advertising, which then gets people down certain paths, which leads to a lot of fake news and it leads to other issues with these certain models that exist today. So I think the promise is not just about blockchain, it's about a combination of blockchain and other technologies that are leading towards a, a more empowering time for individuals to take back control of the things that they should be in control of, and that is their digital life. And that's kind of the stuff that I make the tools for that, that empower people to do, to do that. So it's not just blockchain is, is, is going to be providing that. It's a bunch of things and a philosophy of who should own your information, who should be in control of your money. At the end of the day, my belief is the individual, and that's kind of where I'm, I'm helping to, to shift things and move things towards. You know, I think the answer might be obvious to this question, but I'd like to understand what you think is the most significant industry that blockchain will have an impact on and, and why you think that. I think I know the answer, but let's see if I'm right. What do you think? I think like the Internet, it's very difficult to say what one industry. I mean, you can say that, that anything to do with information was radically impacted by the Internet very early on and things like postal services and anything to do with information and, and being able to now have self-blogs and things like that. Uh, but then who's to say that it also hasn't impacted a lot of other sectors and industries as well. It's really a platform, and it's going to impact every sector, every industry. So as much as it's going to impact finance and, and Bitcoin coming along, could impact government money, things like that. Uh, Ethereum is going to impact insurance, law, sports betting, gambling, sports. Everything will be touched by these technologies that uh, seek to remove these middle layers of non-value-added participants from the equation that can be very costly, that can be very um, legacy-based. And it's going to enable uh, users or peer-to-peer -to, -peer to connect more efficiently no matter what industry it is. Uber has a middle layer of the Uber and the company in between. Imagine a system that uh, connects riders and drivers without needing all these middle layers and doesn't have a jurisdiction and has, doesn't have a, uh, an actual entity that has to have high legal costs in between. That's what we have to look forward to is, is kind of a removal of a lot of the middle layers that are costly and expensive. And that gets right down to the companies that we see right now that have to do compliance and have compliance departments where in the future they can just live in the cloud and they're not going to have to need those things. So I would say there's not one particular sector, that there's going to be a number of different sectors, and that's going to be impacted greatly by, by these new technologies. 
Well, that's a good way to put it, because I was going to jump on finance and exchanges. I know you did some work at the TMX when it came to putting in in blockchain, and you were a digital director there. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Sure. Uh, Back in 2015, there was an an influx of large entities, stock exchanges, banks that were kind of following suit when NASDAQ made its first announcement that they would be investigating blockchain technology. And it kind of opened the floodgates for for entities to go start learning. And being a company that uh, was very in the forefront of that already at the time, uh, we were looked upon by organizations such as Deloitte and uh, TD Bank and and others to provide consulting services to them as to get them up to speed about what was happening here. So we started a consulting business at Decentral and began working with large entities. And for those that know me, I'm not someone to dismiss or say, I want to get rid of those people. I, I believe people need to be brought along and we need to have wins for all stakeholders. So I'm very much for working with everybody as possible in order to create a better situation in the future and not say, you know, let's get rid of government, let's get rid of banks. So, so I was uh, very ready to, to work with entities such as that. And along the way, I became a client of uh, the TMX, which is the parent company of the Toronto Stock Exchange. And through those engagements, uh, I was approached by them with a proposal to have a greater role with them. And, and I presented a proposal for me to become the chief digital officer, something that they didn't have at the time. And uh, they accepted that. And I became a part-time chief digital officer for the, for the TMX group. And I would work between 4 o'clock in the morning to 8 in the morning there. And then I would go and run Decentral, my shop, from 8 o'clock onwards for the rest of the day. And along that journey for nine months that I believed that I was there, um, worked with them on how to create better efficiencies using the technologies that I was bringing forward, and not just technology, but problem solving. That's what I'd like to say is, is what I'm good at, is, is solving problems that don't necessarily even need technology, but sometimes just an understanding of who are the stakeholders, what is the actual problem, how can, can we create winning situations for everybody, and how can we do things in a different way of thinking, and, and that's kind of where my papers that I'll be presenting soon will be talking about, is new problem-solving frameworks that I utilize and how I can bring those forward. Um, so that's how that engagement happened, and uh, it was an amazing experience. Um, got to see what it's like to work with a pinnacle of or a lot of people knowing a entity like that that has a lot of size and strength, and also at the same time learning their deficiencies and learning how difficult it is to, to make change there. But uh, I did have some great learning experiences there. It must have been highly entertaining for an online digital guy like yourself to become the chief digital officer, the CDO of the TMX, when you're running into a bunch of hardcore suits that probably have somewhat Neanderthal attitudes toward digitization. It must have been fairly entertaining. I was actually quite impressed with the, the receptiveness uh, to change. For those that do know me, I, I don't wear suits. Um, I have one uniform. It's a white T-shirt and, and blue jeans generally. And I took that right into my meetings with the board at times because I was told by my boss, it's worked for you up to here. Why change it? So I was actually quite impressed with the receptiveness of what uh, I was able to bring there. And I think it also has to do a lot of diplomacy and the way that I do try to bring things across to people and try to speak in clear language that is going to to allow understanding of things. And and that's something I do pride myself on is being able to speak to many different groups. And that includes high finance. That includes those that that generally wear suits. And that includes developers, which is, you know, in the software realm, which is my space. I was able to navigate that. And I was quite impressed by, by how receptive they were. Well, I'm glad that you were there and that you were the right guy to be there because at least you had the perspective, you had the background. The wrong guy in that place could have really turned that into to quite the joke. Let's talk about the future of blockchain because the global blockchain, I think it's about $3 billion now, but it's 
plan to go to about $40 billion in less than four or five years by 2025. China, I know, is leading the game right now, and they're getting ready to issue their crypto one, and they seem to be beyond the reach of other global market players. I didn't really believe that until I started doing the research into this. So how does Canada fit into this? What are we doing in the crypto race today, the blockchain race today? And what can we do better to compete not only with China, but with other tech hubs and ecosystems? I'll say Silicon Valley, but there's so many of them. Actually, the numbers are, the numbers are much higher than you've mentioned there. I mean, we've already hit the trillions. Uh, Bitcoin has hit a market cap of already over a trillion dollars at one time, and Bitcoin half a trillion. So those numbers are actually much higher than what you, you brought forward there. And it really shows what's happened this year. And it has uh, skyrocketed this year before. quite a bit of a dip over the last uh, the last week or so, or a couple of weeks, but what do countries have to do? Embrace the technologies, uh, ensure that they're not uh, putting themselves in the situations where they put heavy-handed uh, regulations in place without maybe understanding really what's going on, and that's always a fear that I have. Countries are going to say, you know, uh, before educating themselves and fully understanding the power of these technologies and the potential for good of these technologies and the potential to solve problems, and the potential they have to actually uh, be a, a leading source of, of these technologies, which will in turn, you know, create jobs and create ecosystems and things like that, is, is educate yourself first. And that's always been something that I've, uh, since 2012, have, have, have made it a priority and focus with, with the, the groups that I've set up and the conferences that I've done and or over 100-plus events that I've, that I've put on and, and working with different government entities and, and speaking to different departments about the about from relaying what, what the promise of this is and, and ensuring that uh, there's not a fear approach. I think a lot of times there will be a focus on, you know, the fearful things that come out of these technologies and whereby you'll always have that. I mean, when the Internet started, there was fear all over the place. Uh, you know, what's this going to lead to? It's only good for porn or it's only good for this. And, and then over the years, everybody, I think, will come to a realization that this technology has really created a lot of amazing change for, for humanity. And that's what I see is going to be happening with these technologies. So, those countries that do embrace, understand, bring forward uh, welcomeness uh, to the technologies, I think, will be the ones that do succeed. Those that, that maybe take it from a more of a fear-based approach uh, will be the ones that will, will be harming themselves and may get left behind. So I, I think uh, there's great opportunity for Canada. There's great opportunity for the areas that I'm focused on here in Toronto and Vancouver, which are amazing hubs, to continue to embrace these technologies, to continue to to develop new ways of doing things using blockchain and using other tech decentralized technologies. I'm really hoping that the, the government will, will come on board and the regulators will, will show that understanding and let the technologies flourish. Because I think at the end of the day, it's going to lead to a lot of amazing things for Canada, especially. That's their goal, and that's what they, they end up doing. Well, we've been great leaders. If you go back the decades, Nortel, BlackBerry, the Canada Arm, we've done all this great stuff, and it all starts in academia. How do you feel about what we're doing at the university level across the country, as you can best speak to it, as far as getting the roots of blockchain and decentralization into the academic environment as, as core offerings? So the future engineers, future finance people, this is just part of their nature. How are we doing academically? Well, it's been 10 years since I've been in the space, and uh, it was surprising to me early on, and maybe for the first five, six, seven years, that there, there was a, a real lack of movement in the technology. And I think it has to do with the whole you know, Silicon Valley mentality. And, and even in Waterloo, it was really surprising. It took such a long time for groups to form there, or meetup groups within the, organ within the, the universities to form. And I, I would say an adjunct professor at UT in a blockchain law course a couple of years back. And, but that took quite a while to get there. And, and I was even a professor over at the University of Nicosia back in like 2014. So even they showed earlier interest than you would see in a lot of other places. So it's happening. I was surprised with how slow it, slow it was to start off over the last number of years. But I do think it's instrumental. I do see more and more 
a movement towards adding these two curriculums in many different areas because it's going to impact uh, so many different sectors. And for me, it was the law that I was teaching at U of T, but uh, of course, engineering and Waterloo and things like that, I, I think it's moving more towards the acceptance of, of the technologies and, and putting them into the curriculums. Yeah, I don't think that I'm surprised at all. I think things in Canada adopt slowly, but we put a lot of depth to what we adopt. Let me ask you this. Do you remember the Canadian Mint a number of years ago came out with their Mint chip cryptocurrency? Do you recall that? I do. Whatever happened to that? They had the game in hand, and they let it go. I think the project uh, didn't get any wings. It ended up being sold, I believe, and then taken on by a for-profit entity, and I don't know if it's amounted to anything. It's so unfortunate. Um, I don't know what the genesis of initially as to why it didn't additionally go. It could have just been because there's, and this is something I witnessed during the time with the TMX as well, is, is you've got a very high regulatory burdens on organizations, especially when you're dealing with things like the, the, the Royal Mint and trying to match them with decentralized technologies that, that state, uh, well, we've got to kind of get rid of decentralized bodies and authorities here. And a lot of times there's a clashing between the two things that don't result in anything of value coming out of it because they realize that their, their hands are tied and the certain promises that come about via decentralization and blockchain really don't uh, adapt very well for the, the state that, that, that those organizations are in. And a lot of times there's just not enough people within the organization that can attract the talent. And that's something that we've saw for many years in, in banks and other organizations where there would be just uh, an unwillingness of the, of the good talent that you need to go and work for those types of entities and the type of transition that's happening where whereby you'd have a few hires that would go into a Deloitte or go into a bank and then very rapidly over the next year or two you'd see them kind of saying well we're being held back and it's better if we start a startup and we'll shift towards that so talent and just understanding of what these technologies bring forward that don't quite mesh with the structures that are currently in place. And a lot of the projects go by the wayside because they can't figure out ways to, to bring the two things together. That's a really good observation. Let's finish off by talking about entrepreneurship a little bit. Now, you've launched more than 10 companies. You've backed, I don't even know how many companies, tons of companies. What's the number one thing entrepreneurs overlook when they start a new venture? I think a lot of times it's how long something could take. We've seen uh, you know, Amazon come in early 2000s, late 90s, I think it was. And when could you really say that they've really made the breakthrough? You know, how long did it really take them to, to get things off the ground? You know, some could argue even companies like Apple. How long did it take them and how long have they been around to, to really get them to where they are right now? So a lot of times there's a coming in with the, the mentality that this is going to take a year to do what we want to do or two years, and it actually takes much longer especially when you're working with technologies that are being developed and don't have the frameworks and don't have the libraries and don't have the things that you need in order to get them off the ground. So I've learned very quickly that, um, you know, I've always had a long-term goal in what I've done, but a lot of things you think, and this is a, a saying which I'm probably going to get wrong, but a lot of things that you think that you can do in a year, you can't, and, and a lot of things you, can, you think you might be able to get done in 10 years, you can get them much sooner. So it's, it's a lot of misestimations of either time or it's going to take to do things, the money you might need to do things. The ability to execute is majorly um, important, yet so few people have the ability to do so. And that's really what I see as a big lack in things execution. Over time, things change. Over time, there's partnerships and fellow co-founders that you get disagreements and things don't work out there. And then you get investors. So there's so many different moving parts and pieces which make entrepreneurship so challenging and risky. Yet, it's the rewards that you can eventually do if you, if you do piece all the things together and are able to solve problems and and work on many different levels to put all the pieces over time in ways that that work out towards those solutions. So it's a very, very challenging space, and you've got to give it to people that do try it out. Um, but it's the longevity, I think, in execution um, that, that does make things challenging, but that's just the part of it, and that's why so few do succeed. 
And that's why I'm really hoping we can build a generation uh, of problem solvers. I think it's all about problem solving. And if we can create better problem solvers and better leaders and put those two things together in curriculum that are, that are put out to youth at very young ages, I think Canada has a really great opportunity to create a really amazing generation of, of next entrepreneurs. Oh, I think you're right, because we have more entrepreneurs per capita than any other country. 70% of employees in this country work for small businesses, however you define small businesses, that's that generally holds. And most entrepreneurs in Canada approach it with what I call two Ps and an F, passion, perseverance, and focus. That's what it takes. The other thing, just to supplement what, what you had to say, people always underestimate the cost of a project. You touched on it when you alluded to time and, and resources, but projects always cost more because as you iterate, you're writing another check. You're raising more funding. So you got to be aware that there's more funding required. From wherever you start, I always say do a cash flow and then add 50% to it. Let's talk about funding for a minute. I know you said try and do it on your own. I alluded to family and friends. But is there something that you would suggest that our entrepreneurs could think about if they wanted to secure funding in a creative, non-traditional way? Yeah, I mean, what we did with Ethereum was, was crowdfunding. We figured out a situation where, and part of my business uh, problem-solving models include adding the world as a stakeholder to what it is you're trying to do. The more stakeholders that you can add to what it is you're trying to accomplish, and the more you can create win-win-win for all stakeholders, the more you're going to get people on your side, and I think that's generally how movements are created. And with Ethereum, we had 9,000 people, basically. So we had 9,000 people that gave us capital to build out the product. That wasn't just by accident. It was, how do we get as many people from around the world incentivized and aligned with us on our goal as a team to, to create the change we wanted to create. And the best way we saw of doing that was to have the world as a stakeholder and offer it to as many people as possible. And we did an open-ended crowd sale at the time. Is basically anybody in the world could participate in it and, and give us Bitcoin at the time, and we would in turn give them Ether when we launched the product. And that's exactly what we did. And 32,000 Bitcoin raised at the time and $18 million. We did that, and that spawned a really amazing community of vested people that were really interested in us carrying out what we wanted. And Along the way, the Bitcoin that we collected, actually, the value of it went in half just with the markets. We ended up only having a capital of about $9 million to work with at the time. It did cause a little bit of stress and anxiety trying to still accomplish what we did. But the team did it, and we were able to bring that forward. So creative ways like that or thinking outside of the box or thinking, how can I create something that's going to have as many stakeholders as possible? How am I going to figure out what people's problems are and then what I'm bringing forward is going to help solve those problems? Because I figure if, if you can bring forward solutions to people's everyday problem and try to add that into the mix of what it is you're trying to bring forward as a project, you have more likely the people to support what you're doing in a lengthy fashion. So my advice is always to take what it is you're trying to build, see how you can add more stakeholders into the mix to what it is, and then using problem-solving capabilities, which I hope most people do have in different frameworks, you create win-win-wins across the board, and then people realize that by them joining you on their mission, they're, when it's something in their day-to-day -day life is improved. And again, that's how I feel that you can get movements created with a lot of people on your side. Anthony, what went through your mind when you launched this thing and all of a sudden millions of dollars start rolling in out of the ether, if you will? What went through your mind? I can't fathom that feeling. It was a definitely validating for what it is that we've been planning to do for, and it wasn't even that long, actually. It was only a number of months before us, actually, uh, the conception of the idea and actually the, the crowd sale, it was less than a year that we put together, actually, maybe about eight months or seven months to put it together. So it was extreme validation uh, when the money started going in on our, on our site that we had, and we saw the numbers climbing there, and then not even knowing how much would, would be collected 
uh, because it was, it was open-ended and people could actually buy as much as they wanted at that time. And so we didn't know what it would be ending at. And when it ended at the, the 32,000 Bitcoin, it was a really phenomenal feeling. And it was, it was one of those feelings that I can only feel I felt a few different times in my life. Once when I put on a, a Bitcoin conference in Toronto where you look at the crowd and you're speaking to these hundreds of people and it's like, you know, we did it. The time and energy it took to put this together, the trials and tribulations, the, the having to, to deal with different personalities and different things to get here, and it's worth it. And, and that sense of validation, I think, gives you the energy to keep going and doing more and more. And that's how I've always looked at things. It's like, what's the next thing that I want to be doing? And we've done this, and we've validated that we can do this. It's like, how can we strive for something even greater? So the feeling was amazing. The feeling was something that you, was a team that was brought together with so many people all around the world that contributed to such an amazing project. There's two books out right now on Ethereum. There's a third one coming out shortly. Uh, people want to take a look at, 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 at the makings of the whole thing. It, it is really a fantastic story. I think it's, it's quite amazing. Again, with three Canadian founders, it's fantastic. Anthony, before we let you go, my favorite part of the interview, these questions I'm going to ask you come in from around the world. Rapid-fire questions. I'm asking them. You're answering them. You ready? Favorite local takeout spot in Toronto? Impact Kitchen. Oh, they're around the corner for me. They're amazing, aren't they? They are. They are amazing. They do a fabulous breakfast. Too bad you can't go in and sit in it right now. But soon, soon, maybe. Yeah. I'll, which impact soon, do you go to? Uh, I go to the one at uh, Adelaide. I'm at the one up in the Rosedale area. Okay, there are there any up-and-coming blockchain uh, startups that you want to send a shout-out to? Shift is one of them. I will say that I am a, an investor in the project. It's something I invested in. God, it's got to be about three years ago, and I was never sure uh, how they would get it off the ground, but it's the best product for me is ones that bring together a multitude of different entities that you may think might be contradictory. In the shift uh, sense of things, they brought together a win for government. They brought together a win for exchanges. They brought together a win for the consumers by providing a, a type of verification system that's decentralized and that enables the sharing of information without having to actually release your information to different exchanges and, and different government entities, but still provides the same service that you might do when you're doing KYC and AML. Uh, so any type of complementary project that I see that, that provides wins for many different stakeholders is the ones that I generally like. And in fact, there was a number of my ex-teammates uh, uh, for my company that got together and I decided to fund them. Most memorable piece of advice you've ever been given? It's kind of similar to my question. If I look back and say, you know, who's the most influential person? And I, and I think of Mr. Rogers. Um, and I'm not talking Ted Rogers. I'm talking Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and the ability to speak to children and the ability to be able to squat down and be able to say to a child or speak in their language in a way that they can help see the world a little bit better and a little bit differently, because a lot of times, I think as we get older, we forget what it's like to be a child. And I think if you can be someone that is, that is, is going to be able to, to connect with, with youth, and the younger they are, the better, and be able to bring across your messages to them in positive and inspirational fashion, I think it's, it's not just uh, maybe advice given to me, but more advice from, from that person, Mr. Rogers, of, of how to really connect well with children. I think it's something that a lot of adults uh, are, aren't able to, to do, and, and I think it's such a special thing that he was able to do, and it's something that I, that I admire and, and have looked up to for a long time. That's a terrific comment, and I've not heard that answer before. And the only thing I would add to it is three- and four-year-olds believe everything you tell them, which is always, always fun. Early bird or night owl, Anthony? <laughs> I'm generally in bed between 8 and 9 at night, and I get up around ideally 4 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and then I have a number of hours to myself, which is something that I really feel I need in order to create balance uh, with a very busy, hectic day, those, those times to myself to ensure that uh, getting to my emails and having a really slow day and puttering around in the mornings uh, before a very busy day. So uh, I'm not sure if that's that's not a night owl, but it's also very, very early in the morning. You're a hybrid, and just hearing what time you get up, I need a nap. Now, the best part about being a founder, 
being in control of your game. I love creating the rules to my games. And when I'm a founder, I can set the rules in terms of engagement. And that's what I do when I, when I even work with contractors or when I work with outside consultants is I, I strive as much as I can to be in control of the game. A lot of times people would like you to be involved in their games. You sign a legal contract. They, it's their contract they're bringing forward. They're the experts. They expect you to sign it the way that they want it, and they're going to give you this boiler template that's going to say, you know, this is the best way, and then you'll say, well, it looks like it's really favored to you, and I'm going to question this, and why is it like that? Is there a better way for us to align our incentives together so that we're going towards a common goal and we're not fighting as a team to what it is we want to accomplish? So the idea of being able to maintain control of the game is something that you can do as a founder, is something that you can do as an entrepreneur. That's probably the best thing that I enjoy is being able to set the terms, set the rules, and for me, when you do use your own money, you can, you can feel good that, that you're doing something that, that's yours and you do take more respect for it. Post-pandemic, where's the first place you are traveling to? Oh, I'm actually going to, to France as a plan for, for October. I've been picking up a, a car there from a, a French manufacturer, and I'll let people guess what that is. What industry or business do you think will be gone in five years? Industry or business? Well, I think making uh, combustion engines are, are going to be... Uh, dwindling, I don't think it's going to be five years, but we're going to see a lot of countries, and we've already seen a lot of countries put the mandating of, of after a certain amount of time, we're not going to see the combustion engines being made in any cars that are, that are made. And there's definitely a shift to electric, eventually a shift to, to hydrogen. It's going to happen, I believe. Um, so there's definitely a shift happening now. And anything that's going to work towards reducing those and reducing the burden and, and impact on, on the planet is going to be something that I don't know will be five years, but there's definitely the shift that's happened towards that. So, Anthony, given that we've got a global audience of entrepreneurs and startups and tech people primarily, is there any final thought you'd like to leave us with, something I didn't ask that I really should have that you want to get out there? As an entrepreneur, as a founder, we're looking to solve people's problems. And I think trying to identify with what it is anybody is doing as an entrepreneur, as a founder, is going to help the most amount of people and help solve the most amount of problems. And relentlessly trying and, and keeping going and, and keeping your energies up and the, the hard times are the things that, that really make you. I've been through a lot of rough situations in my life, and a lot of people have. And it's really those situations that if you can take them in a perception of experiences and lessons, and as great things that have happened to you, not as really bad times, but things that made you grow and things that you've built upon and that have made you stronger. I think it's just a general shift of perception and, and embracing and loving those things that, that might have been the hardest challenges or times in your life or when you're really feeling down at what it is you're doing. Uh, and taking those lessons and putting them together is what, is what makes you stronger, makes you more resilient. So I think one, one thing is to just embrace those things when a lot of people may say, you know, I wish it never happened to me. Wish they happened to you and wish they happened to you, maybe not in a chronic fashion, but in a way that's going to give you a more resilience and more strength to, to do the achievements and, and the things that you want to do. Well said and great perspective. Anthony DiOrio, co-founder Ethereum. He's the Ethereum guy, CEO of Decentral, Decentral.ca. Anthony, thank you for being a guest on the Movers and Shakers podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. And until next time, I'm Robert Gold, managing partner of Bennett Gold LLP, chartered accounts and CPAs in Toronto. If you want to know how we innovate, just check out our website. Tell me if you've ever seen a CA firm that looks like that, BennettGold.ca. See you next time in the morning, everyone, and good night, pain court on Ontario. And that's a wrap for this episode of the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast. Make sure you subscribe and follow our podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at dmz.ryerson.ca for more tips and tools designed to support your business. Until next time.